It's the 15th of October, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. I've got a new quote. I've got a new word. Which patient characteristics do you rely on to inform your choice of treatment? An exploratory study that looked at Orenzia, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor may provide some insights. Don't treat in the dark. Visit OrenziaData.com. So you're wondering what that might be. My new quote, Adam Grant, has got a great podcast. His quote is, don't confuse being a fast talker with being a deep thinker. Speaking quickly signals confidence, not complexity. And don't mistake volume for expertise. Speaking loudly reflects conviction, not credibility. These worry me as I'm kind of loud and I talk kind of fast. Sometimes the best ideas come from the least assertive voice in the room. I think that's actually true. But I'll steal a line from Ethan Craig, who retweeted this for me. He says, a loud, fast-talking man that has no idea what he's talking about. He can vouch for this quote. Thank you, Ethan. I'm going to mirror your comments. So my new word of the week is quackademic. I loved it. Quackademic. It's what? It's an academic center person who's doing quackery research. This was uh, a title I found in something about stem cell research trying to treat autism being done by a prestigious medical center, hence quackademic. You know, you could spin this off and go a lot of different directions. Quackademic, academics who just don't know when to stop. You know, they've got a crack-like mentality to everything they do. Shackademic, that would be an incredibly big, big-time academician, the ones we'd like to have as friends. I could think of a few shackademics that are running around these days. So let's go on with today's report. Um, a lot of um, nice reports, a lot of nice research has been put out this, pe- this week and a few interesting announcements. Uh, a simple report we'll start off with comparing the risk of acute uveitis in spondyloarthritis patients based on the therapy they take. You know the answer to this. Patients on monoclonal antibodies against TNF inhibitors have the best and lowest rate of incidence and recurrence. That would be infliximab and adalimumab. Not as good for etanercept. This particular study compared in over 5,000 new drug starts, about 500 starting secukinumab, the IL-17 inhibitor, and 4,500 starting one of the three TNF inhibitors. The risk of acute uveitis was actually similar between etanercept and secukinumab. Secukinumab's risk was about 7 or 6.8 per 100 patient years and with etanercept 7.5. It was significantly lower, 2.9 and 4 with infliximab and adalimumab respectively so. Secukinumab seems to have a 2.3 fold higher risk than the TNF inhibitors when it comes to um, the development of uveitis. So it might have some marginal effects, but if that's what you're looking to do, IL-17 is probably not your best agent. A really interesting study about CXCL13. This is one of the chemokines that's out there. CXCL13 is involved in B-cell uh, migration to germinal centers and lymph nodes and whatnot. Uh, it seems to be a good biomarker in certain leukemias and lymphomas. Uh, T-cell lymphomas. Um, This particular study looked at its utility in 158 patients 
with early RA who were followed over an 11-year period. And they looked at a lot of different biomarkers trying to predict future radiographic worsening. That would be change in total sharp score and erosion score. And in this particular study, they showed that CXCL13 did correlate baseline. CXCL13 levels did correlate with the risk of future X-ray progression 11 years later. In fact, CXL13 was superior to CRP, Dash 28 CRP, swollen joint count, and CCP in predicting future erosions. It's a chemokine. Um, again, there's a, not a lot of attention being paid to chemokines these days. I think we probably should be taking a second look at that and find out where the, their utility may lie. This is a good example of where, uh, where it's performed well. Um, the risk of infection with biologics, always uh, something on your mind. Um, I don't know if you've noticed the results that I've seen and talked about over the years, but you know, RA's got a, a well-known number of serious infectious events. Pre-biologic area, it's three to nine SIEs per 100 patient years and 100 patients followed for a year. Somewhere between three and nine, taking methotrexate, gold, plaquenil, whatever, would end up with a hospitalizable or serious infection. In the biologic era, the numbers actually went down. Um, most of the biologic studies are somewhere between two and five um, SIEs per 100 patient years, which you know, generally in an ideal patient means that biologics don't cause a serious infectious risk. But that's, those are the numbers in RA. If you look at the numbers of the same drugs, whether it's a adalimumab, for instance, or um, you know any drug, this, this, a, a JAK inhibitor, for instance, the rates of SIEs are much lower in psoriatic patients, psoriasis, uh, and psoriatic arthritis than in rheumatoid arthritis. And I say my interpretation of that is rheumatoid arthritis and, for that matter, IBD is are much dirtier. There's a lot more comorbidity. There are a lot. There's a lot more systemic full-time inflammation in play. That's why you see slightly higher rates compared to psoriatic disease. And this particular study looked at that. Uh, 2,400 RA and PSA patients started on a TNF inhibitor, and they looked at the rates of serious infections, and it was higher in RA, four per 100 patient years in RA, and two per 100 patient years. It's double in RA than that's seen in PSA. Again, the sort of I like, I'm reporting it because it always backs up my beliefs. I don't know if that's really good science, but nonetheless, I think it's important to know. I've got a six-pack of Stills disease for you. You know I'm interested in Stills disease, and that means you're along for the ride, whether you like it or not. Here are six reports. Number one, a retrospective study of almost, what, 534 um, new-onset systemic JIA patients from 52 uh, tertiary medical centers to children's hospitals in the United States looked at what drugs they were treated with at presentation. Presentation, as you know, is always systemic, hot stuff, bad lab, patient sick, high fevers, rashes, organomegaly, etc. What were they started with? 29% were started with biologics, 58% steroids. They did show that over time, biologic use increased and that methotrexate dependency decreased. Biologics were correlated with the volume of the hospital, whether or not the patient was likely to go into the ICU, uh, and then later years of observation. This was done between 2008 and 2019. Report number two, a comparative study of 46 stills patients, nine, who, of whom, nine patients with MAS and 31 adult uh, HLH patients looked at IL-18 levels and its value. Turns out IL-18, serum IL-18 levels was mo more, much higher in patients 
with stills, adult onset stills, than the adult HLH patients. And it correlated best with ferritin levels and soluble IL-2 receptors. Overall, if you want to distinguish between stills disease or AOSD and H adult HLH, IL-18 levels, IL-2 receptor levels, and the presence of arthralgia and arthritis clearly distinguish between those two. Report number three, smoking is bad in stills disease. Well, this is not a, a, a shocker, but nonetheless, it's adding to the list where smoking makes things worse. It's not only RA, it's PSA, it's SPA, it's JIA, it's lupus, and now stills disease. In this particular study, 185 stills patients, 45 of whom were smokers, yes, the smokers had worse disease, as exemplified by double the rate of pericarditis and pleuritis and abdominal pain, a higher systemic um, activity score. They had more episodes of macrophage activation syndrome, 29% versus 6% in non-smokers. They had more parenchymal lung disease, 19% versus 13%. Not a good idea to be smoking if you have an inflammatory arthritis. Report number four in the Stills Disease Six-Pack. There's such a thing as catastrophic stills disease. I didn't know that until I read this. They call catastrophic stills disease any stills disease that leads to organ failure or significant organ compromise. So they compared 20 patients with organ compromise to uh, 40 without organ compromise. Uh, and they showed that the patients who had catastrophic stills disease had shorter disease durations um, and an earlier need for systemic therapy. What does that mean? That means that they had more acute systemic presentations with a rapid onset. And then that means that you're more likely to have organ involvement, you know, liver, lung, heart doesn't usually get involved, splenomegaly. Um, the ones who are at risk here, they tend to be younger, they tend to have splenomegaly, liver, cardiac, and lung involvement, very and higher ferritin levels. And interestingly, no arthralgias at presentation. That's number four. Number five, well, it's kind of stills. It's talking about anakinra. It's a meta-analysis of anakinra's utility in COVID. And based on this, um, this analysis um, of nearly 2,000 patients, that uh, anakinra was significantly um, effective at lowering mortality risk, almost a 70% reduction compared to historic controls, um, in patients who had severe hospitalizable, hospitalizable COVID-19 pneumonia. So if there was evidence of hyperinflammation with extremely high ferritin levels and extremely high CRP levels, it was maybe even more effective, almost an 80% reduction in mortality. Interestingly, this meta-analysis that comes out, um, comes out the same week as does the ULAR recommendations on COVID management in rheumatic patients, where they did not endorse either colchicine or anakinra, saying that the data was not yet robust enough. I don't know what robust, robust means, but I think there's a lot of data. There's at least, you know, four really good reports that, uh, as good as it gets, at least in COVID, that suggest that there's a beneficial effect to anakinra. Now, would it be as good as, or is it as good as, you know, the current rage of treat using tocilizumab and IL-6 inhibition? I think head-to-head -head it would be. But then again, such studies have not been done. My last report in the six-pack was a report from yesterday where I saw another ridiculous report on Stills disease. Stills disease associated with this, associated with that. Most of those I just, you know, say nothing to or because, for instance, Stills disease associated with pregnancy. Well, Stills disease is a disease of young people. Half of them have are, are males and half are females. So 
Young women can get Stills' disease. Young women can get pregnant. There's no association between Stills' disease and pregnancy, good or bad. It just seems it's a co-occurrence. And what happens with another disorder, it's another co-occurrence. But you know, I saw these reports in the last week or two of Stills' disease occurring following COVID-19 vaccination. And I thought, well, that sort of rang a bell. It rang a bell in that there are reports in that literature, systemic JIA and Stills, that there could be viral onset um, triggers to the disease. Um, there are reports of uh, Stills disease occurring following either pneumococcal or influenza vaccinations. So I found four good reports with all the cases lined up. You can read it and look at all the cases. They're all pretty interesting. There's one 22-year-old, a 35, a 36, and a 42-year-old. They all had high fevers. They all had rashes, and all but one had arthritis. They had all the other things you'd want to see. They met the criteria of Yamaguchi or Fautrell. I didn't test my criteria in this because it was not, that's not the point of this. Um, and they had like white counts of greater than 50,000. They had ferritin levels. One was 2,100, well, the other one, two were over 50,000. Um, again, this is impressive Stills disease. And they all occurred, um, three of them occurred three days after their last vaccination. And which vaccine? It was with Moderna, Pfizer, and the adenovirus vaccines. So non-discriminatory. Um, three to five days later, the onset of features, um, a, hist a, a history of disease that played out over two to four weeks. Uh, and in um, at least two of the cases, they resolved. And two of the cases continued. And they were on systemic therapies like anakinra and steroids. So... What does this tell us? Um, again, I'm, uh, you know, Stills disease is an auto-inflammatory disease. There's activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome, and we know that we can, we can activate that inflammasome by um, um, certain molecular patterns, um, uh, including pathogen-associated molecular patterns, or, or PAMPs, and then there's, um, there's also DAMPs, but the PAMPs are in, in infectious agents, um, and, and Again, it, we do know that SARS-CoV-2 well, will lead to co uh, inflammasome activation. We do know that uh, binding of the spike protein to ACE2 receptors leads to downstream NF-kappa-B activation and IL-6 generation and subsequently more IL-1 and feedback to further amplify the inflammasome activity. I mean, there are a few mechanisms by which this may happen. So it could be that SARS-CoV-2 could do this. And there are three cases out there that I've seen of kids with systemic JIA who got worse after they got COVID-19. So SARS-CoV-2 could start this. The question is, why does someone get Stills disease? The inflammasome activity is a normal, innate immune response. It becomes Stills disease when they don't turn off. So that must be other factors, other epigenetic changes that's acquired uh, and for reason, and we don't really know the etiology of this, but I find this this association with COVID vaccination interesting. Uh, speaking of vaccination, let's talk about hepatitis B vaccination. Uh, uh, a nice report of almost 2,000 patients. Uh, I believe this was done in Korea, uh, who underwent serologic testing from 2003 to 2019. Um, they found in this group. Um, 489 of the 2,000 who had a history of um, resolved hepatitis B, 
occult hepatitis B. Those would be patients who are hepatitis B surface antigen negative, but or hepatitis B core antibody positive, and they may or may not be hepatitis B surface antibody positive. As you know, the surface antibody is what you get when you are vaccinated against hepatitis B. You may get it and keep it or lose it if you had infection with hepatitis B. In this particular study, they looked at um, what happened as far as reactivation um, in, when these individuals were taking biologic DMARDs. So with like 67,000 person months of follow-up, they had 27 patients or 5.5% who developed reactivation of hepatitis B. And guess what the drugs were that were most likely to lead to reactivation. By the way, if you're on a TNF inhibitor and you're in this profile of resolved hepatitis B, occult hepatitis B, your risk of reactivation is said to be low, 2%. That's a combination or a conglomerate of many different studies put together, and that's the number that I see. In this study, it's, it's 5%, 5.5%. The drugs that most likely led to reactivation, rituximab, an 88-fold increased risk. Next on the list, interestingly, abatacept, a 61-fold increased risk. And the other factor was if you did not have any hepatitis B surface antibody at baseline when you started the drug. So being hep B surface antibody positive does have some protective effects when you're starting these biologics, the TNF inhibitors. But if you're gonna use rituximab, the current ACR guidelines say that you should probably consult the hepatologist and the patient should be on background antiviral therapy. The same has not been said for abatacept. And I think we, and there has been hints, Dr. First had a report about abatacept um, and hep B reactivation about 10 years ago. Um, this needs a further look, but I would be cautious with abatacept. There's a cancer risk in lupus. Everybody knows that it's small. Other past reports have said it's related to age and seen more in men and smokers. In this particular report by Bernaski and colleagues from Canada, they looked at um, an incident lupus cohort of nearly 1,700 patients, followed for nine years and found a total of 65 cancers, most of them being breast 15, non-melanoma skin 10, seven lung, six hematologic, six prostate. What were the risk factors for developing a cancer if you have lupus? It mirrored what was been seen before, males, older individuals, smokers. There is an association with disease activity in some cancers. And the other interesting factor from this particular report was that use of hydroxychloroquine was somewhat, somewhat protective against breast cancer and non-melanomanous skin cancer. Another, yet another reason to, for everybody to be on vitamin H, hydroxychloroquine. I found this particularly interesting, and that is a report suggesting there's been a decline in the rate, the incidence of Bichette's disease in Korea between 2004 and 2017. The, the rate in 2004 was 8 per 100,000 individuals. By 2017, that's uh, 13 years later, it's down to 1.5. From 8.1 to 1.5 per 100,000, that's an 85, excuse me, 82% decrease, more so in women and middle-aged individuals, but really no change in survival or mortality, which is obviously low. But the question is why? The genetics probably did not change during this period. What did change environmentally? That's an interesting question. And the other question is, has, is this going to be seen in other populations worldwide? Nonetheless, I must say, I don't see very much Bichette's 
anymore in my practice. I used to see a fair amount of it. I used to think that a lot of Bichette's was a cold sore and fibromyalgia, but there is real Bichette's, you know, oral, genital ulcers, you know, um, eye inflammation, gut inflammation. Again, then they're difficult to manage, right? Um, luckily, we have some new drugs for that. Um, so the big news this week was the FDA um, uh, approving the drug of Acapan, um, the C5A inhibitor for use in ANCA-associated vasculitis. Based on a number of trials, we've covered that at ACR in the past and also recently the FDA hearing, uh, which, by the way, the FDA hearing wasn't a good hearing. I mean, it was sort of a split decision by the advisory panel, but yet the FDA has gone ahead and approved this drug um, uh, in, in, for use in ANCA-associated vasculitis. And again, the controversy here was it didn't meet its primary endpoints at week 24, but it did at week 52. I think I like having another option other than steroids, but when you compare Avacapan to steroids, obviously expensive and cheap, there wasn't really a tremendous uh, safety benefit to Avacapan. Um, and I, that I found particularly bothersome, but let's see how it does in the real world, and that's you. You're a real doc in the real world. Let's see what you do. Retro. We've been talking about retro a while. Finally, it shows up in press. Um, this is a 303 rheumatoid arthritis study where the patients were in remission, DAS remission of less than 2.6 for at least 12 months, and then they get randomized to three different groups. One, no change. They stay on their same therapy. Two, they taper their, their, their therapy. Um, and then the other group is they, they taper for six months and then they stop after six months. And the risk of relapse, as you can imagine, is, um, was best, meaning uh, no relapse rate was highest in those who continued, 81%. Um, a lot less in those who tapered, 59%. And, and really a lot less in patients who stopped, 43%. Um, or the converse of that would be the number who actually relapsed. The risk of relapse was threefold higher if you tapered, fourfold higher if you stopped. I look at this and say, don't stop, don't taper. You work your whole life to control rheumatoid arthritis. Don't play this game. This is really stupid. But yet, I know you're forced into situations where patients want to stop. And as the ACR guidelines and other guidelines have said, tis better to taper than to stop. Again. Don't endorse it unless you're forced to. There's a report about triple DMARD therapy, and what if the triple DMARD therapy, instead of methotrexate sulfasalazine hydroxychloroquine, was a substitution of leflunamide for sulfasalazine? So methotrexate leflunamide hydroxychloroquine, how do they perform? 136 patients, active RA, open-label study. At week 12 and week 24, the response rates um, by ULAR good responses were equal. Hence, you can substitute leflunamide for sulfasalazine if there's an issue of sulfasalazine tolerance. Um, my, my belief is that methotrexate leflunamide is a fabulous combination by itself. I don't know that it needs another drug like hydroxychloroquine, but uh, worldwide, that combination of methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine is cheap and widely used and very effective, especially in places where they don't have a lot of biologics to use. Janet Pope tweeted this interesting um, report from the CERT study. As you know, that's the methotrexate prevention trial where they looked at um, the effect of methotrexate on kidney function. Uh, and the bottom line is that, um, that there was very little change in kidney function in those treated with methotrexate. And if you had mild renal impairment, 
uh, you didn't you didn't have any any hit here. So it basically says that you should still follow creatinine. It's a risk factor for methotrexate toxicity, but mild renal impairment can get methotrexate as long as you monitor them. That's again good data coming from this third study. The Opatacib announced its results from two um, uh, phase three select axis studies. These are studies done of Opatacib and the Jack selective Jack one inhibitor in patients with axial. Uh, and non-axial spondyloarthritis, and both of them did very well compared to placebo um, and are going to be part of the portfolio presented to the FDA for further consideration as a new indication. Um, lastly, we have um, a worrisome report about women doing much worse than men with axial spondyloarthritis. I don't know if you follow this literature, but it shows up over and over again. We know uh, spondyloarthritis is a tough disease. Um, Women with this disease are under-recognized. They often get diagnosed later. They often have more pain. This study of nearly 500 patients, a third of whom were women, uh, basically showed women, compared to men, have higher disactivity, higher joint counts, higher enthesitis scores, more pain, worse fatigue, worse function. They have less full-time work. They are more likely to receive DMARD therapy, prednisone, and they suffer from more depression, fibromyalgia. You're going to have to work harder if you're taking care of a woman who has axial spondyloarthritis. I'm gonna end with a, just a simple case report of post-COVID-19 reactive arthritis. And there's actually been a few in the literature. I've not covered them until now. This particular report only had dactylitis, um, had no oligoarthritis, but dactylitis and had um, psoriatic skin and nail changes, painful oral and vaginal um, labial ulcers, subungual keratosis, um, onycholysis, um, but no back pain. It's been seen and it follows the pattern of a reactive arthritis. So that's it for this week. Check out our citations and more. Be sure to follow our ACR coverage. A recommendation for you. Go to your registration uh, room now and your registration profile and check a box on what topics you'd like to receive post-ACR. Following ACR, if you're getting a topic email like I'm interested in lupus and I check that box, I'm going to get an email that's going to tell me what new lupus reports appeared on Room Now this past week. But after ACR, you're going to get all the ACR reports on lupus sent to you in one email. It's a nice way of getting content after the meeting. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to listen up. While there is great hope that an understanding of biomarkers will benefit rheumatoid arthritis patient management, there are but a few biomarkers shown to be both diagnostic and prognostic. Researchers have suggested that RA patients who test positive for specific autoantibodies may express higher disease activity, which could impact treatment strategies, but most practitioners generally use these results only for diagnostic purposes. Bristol-Myers Squibb is investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population. Patients who tested positive for these antibodies which together are associated with higher disease activity. Rheumatologists may want to consider these biomarker-driven results when considering treatment options. To learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.